0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This podcast is being released during the Christmas season, which is in full force now. And Julie Baumgartner of Windshaped Marriage visited The Meeting House recently to provide some insight into how couples can successfully deal with financial aspects of the holidays. Then, it's Laurel Gillen, who desired to tell the story of a meaningful Christmas fixture, the nativity scene, and to do so in a children's tale that incorporates her love of animals. She provides some background on the concept of her work of fiction that is set in the 13th century. And on this edition of The Intersection, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus and hopefully think about the significance of His coming, we can concentrate on knowing Him better. We can do that by focusing on His names that we see throughout Scripture. Ava Pennington joined me recently to share about the importance of names of God, and you'll hear material from that discussion. Finally, the U.S. Supreme Court held oral arguments in early December In the case of a Colorado graphic artist and web designer who did not wish to promote same-sex marriage through her work due to her Christian beliefs, Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom provides analysis of the arguments and states what his organization sees as the central focus of the case. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Julie Baumgardner is the Senior Director of Wind Marriage. She has a great deal of experience in ministering to families. She provides some insight into the financial pressures that couples face, especially during the Christmas season, and offers Christ-centered direction in helping to deal with those challenges. Here now from a recent Meeting House Conversation is Julie Baumgardner. Probably
1: the piece that is the missing conversation for so many couples when it comes to money is what you actually bring to marriage that you believe about money. So uh, I have a friend, her name is Sybil Solomon, and she created this game called Money Habitudes. And I love that game because it actually helps couples to look at what their actual thinking is about money. Some people come to marriage with the idea that money provides security. It helps you feel safe. So I want to save money. Some people think that you have money so that you can feel good about helping others. So you're a giver. You make money to give money. Other people, I mean, they just feel like money is not a priority. Okay, great. We, We have some money. We don't have money, but it's not a priority. Still, others think that money helps you create a positive image about who you are. So if you don't understand what you think about money and what your spouse thinks about money, you can be arguing about money and never get anywhere because you're not arguing about the heart issue. You're just arguing about you're spending all the money or you save so much money. You never let us spend money. And so that for me is the first thing is that you need to understand what you believe about money and what your spouse believes about money. Because my gut is when we argue about the spending habits of each other, uh, we don't get very far because one feels like they're being attacked and the other one feels like they're the victim. And that just doesn't get us anywhere. So that would be the first thing is that it's really important to understand what you think about money. And then the second thing is, uh, and I feel like this goes without saying, but it's just a really good reminder for all of us that um, the season, celebrating this season isn't about money. It's about celebrating the birth of a savior, our savior. And so, if you ask the question, what what is it that we have the opportunity to do this season to celebrate mm. the real meaning of the season? Uh, we actually could celebrate without spending a lot of money. I think where the rub comes is that our culture is all about been since then, and look at all these big things, and especially if you have children, they have lists a mile long of what they want, and you might even have parents or in-laws whispering in your ear about what you should be doing and how you should celebrate and what kind of decorations you should have and, and all of those things. And if you let that become your focus, boy, it can really rob you of your joy for the season. It can rob your family of amazing experiences that actually have nothing to do with money. So first understanding what you think about money. And then second, asking the question, how do we want to celebrate this season? Us as a family, for me, the Baumgartner family, how do we want to celebrate and what gives meaning to this season that helps us keep our focus
0: on Jesus and not on how much money did we spend? Julie Baumgartner here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website windshapemarriage.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Laurel Gillen. Inspired by her love of Italy, the 13th century, and animals, described the children's tale that she crafted called A Bellwether Christmas, a novel inspired by true events. That includes the origins of the Christmas traditions of nativity scenes, as well as Christmas Eve candlelight services. She writes the God and Gardening blog. Here now from a recent Meeting House Conversation is Laurel Gillen.
2: Well, you know, Bob, this whole thing took place, uh, over, there were several experiences that took place over 20-plus years that came together in this book. And the first of those was uh, taking my little grandmother to Italy, Um she always wanted to go since she was a little girl. She'd never been outside the country. And uh, we went to central Italy and toured around and it w- with an ecumenical group, actually. And it was a wonderful experience for, for everyone. Uh, I came back just really uh, intrigued by uh, especially the uh, 13th century uh, places we'd vi- visited uh, that were connected to the uh, St. Francis and the early Franciscans. So uh, when I came back, uh, I started really reading a lot and researching a lot into this time period, this uh, medieval time period. I love medieval, uh, uh, you know, books of all kinds anyway. Uh, when I, I spent years doing this thinking. thinking I was very convinced that, that God was telling me that I would be writing a book set in this time period, but it never really developed. So eventually, I, you know, I put that aside. The second thing was if, uh, several years later um, – my husband and I adopted our son when he was four and we found out very quickly that he had a great affinity with, uh, to animals. They loved him. He loved them. And over the years as he grew up, he adopted first an older horse and then two lambs and then a wild donkey with her foal. So we ended up with a horse, two lambs, two donkeys, and I got to know their personalities and behaviors and that would come in a uh, very handy handle handy, uh, when I was uh, writing this book because I used their personalities and behaviors uh, to help me flesh out the characters, uh, the animal characters in the book. And the third thing was that because I'd, be, I'd uh, read so much and done so much research on that time period, I knew that, it, uh, that uh, before the year 1223, people didn't have, you know, put out crushes or or our churches didn't stage living nativities that was not a tradition that had started yet uh and i don't i don't know if many people know that but it was actually francis and his companions who came up with the idea to uh, uh you know recreate the uh, uh christmas eve in bethlehem they and they took an old uh, a cave in the hermitage where they where they lived and they transformed it into a stable with a manger and an ox and a donkey and a baby Jesus. And people uh, came up to visit by candlelight uh, late on Christmas Eve, um, which is another tradition, of course, that we have. Uh, you know, there were services, there were singing, hmm. and it was a huge hit. Uh, so uh, so those, those traditions of going to church uh, services late at night on Christmas Eve, hand, having candlelight services, and uh, everything we do with creches and mangers and uh, nativities all date back to that uh, one historic Christmas Eve. Those three experiences together uh, came together one day out of the blue after I'd already, you know, kind of put aside the idea of writing a book. And it was, a, it was a Christmas time a few years ago, and this plot for, for a novel just downloaded into my brain in about two minutes. I ran home, wrote it all down, and then I said, oh, my goodness, I've got to write this book. And then I looked and said, well, this is going to be a book, you know, kind of for children, older children. Um, And uh, so I had to figure out how to write it that way. Um, And when I finished, uh, it it ended up being a story, I think, uh, and a book that I think both adults and children will, uh, will love. So that's really how it came about.
0: Laurel Gillen here on The Intersection. You can connect with the God and Gardening blog through Facebook at Laurel G. Blog. For more information on the book, you can go to faithfultext.com. This is The Intersection podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that home page, you'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast and the Meeting House program. You can also find links to the Intersection, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple podcast feed, and there are links to video content. Plus, you can link to two blogs. One is The Three with Three Stories of Relevance to the Christian Community, There's also the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Search for Faith Radio Podcast when you visit Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and other podcast platforms. Well, I had the opportunity recently to talk with Ava Pennington. She is the author of a book entitled Reflections on the Names of God, 180 Devotions to Know God More Fully. During this season of the year, as we celebrate Christ's birth and hopefully think about the significance of his coming, we can concentrate on knowing him better. She shares about the importance of names of God. Here now from that conversation is Ava Pennington.
3: I think A. W. Tozer summed it up best for me when he wrote when he wrote, um, the most important what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you stop and consider that, what we know about God influences our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, our words, our actions, that becomes foundational. And so when I first read that quote, it really struck me, what do I know about God? And how does how little or how much I know influence the way I live? And then I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, *The Screwtape Letters*. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with um, *The Screwtape Letters*. It's a, a book about uh, it's a book about a senior demon advising a junior demon on how to trip up a Christian and how to trap them. And one of the letters in *The Screwtape Letters* it was an exchange between the junior demon who said, Oh, you know, my, my patient, the person assigned to him had, had just started praying. And I know that's a problem. Hmm. And so the senior demon wrote back some advice and he said, now remember, okay, this is from the demonic point of view. So it's going to be the opposite of everything we know to be true. But the, the, senior demon said, okay, he's praying that that's not a great thing, but it's not as bad as you think. The real danger to us is when he stops praying to who he thinks God is and starts praying to who God knows himself to be. And I could camp out on that quote Mm. for days. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have a relationship not with the God with who God who we think that God is, but to have a relationship with who God knows himself to be. Now how do we get there? We have we're finite creatures, yeah. we have finite minds, God is infinite. We're never fully gonna know who God knows himself to be, not in this life anyway, but how can we get closer to that? And the answer is by exploring how God revealed himself in his word. What names did he give himself? What was the context for those names? What attributes did he reveal? What what was the context for those attributes being mentioned for the first time? And the more we can explore what God says about himself, the closer we get to who he knows himself to be hmm. and the closer we get to developing intimacy, not just with our imagined a uh, perspective of who God is, but who God knows himself to be. The more I explored his names and attributes, the more I stood in awe of who he is. Uh, it's, And and by the way, the the way the devotional is structured is it's not just one devotion written on each name or attribute, but each name or attribute is explored through three distinct devotions. And the first one is this is who God revealed himself to be. This is the first time he mentions this name. Uh, And the second devotion on that same name or attribute then focuses on how am I changed because I know that this is who God is. How do I live differently? How do I think differently? Mm-hmm. How do I re- just how am I changed? And then the third devotion on the same name or attribute then explores how do my relationships change? How do I relate to others differently because this is who God is and this is how I am changed. And so the 180 devotions is actually covers 60 names and attributes, but each one looked at three different ways.
0: Ava Pennington here on the intersection. You can find out more by going to the website Ava AVAPennington.com. Finally on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Matt Sharp, Senior Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. The U.S. Supreme Court held oral arguments recently in the case of a Colorado graphic artist and web designer named Lori Smith, who did not wish to promote same-sex marriage through her work due to her Christian beliefs. He provides analysis of the arguments in the case called 303 Creative B. Alanis and states what his organization sees as the central focus of the case. Here now from that conversation is Matt Sharp. Lori Smith is owner of 303 Creative, which is a
4: design studio that focuses on graphic design and websites of custom and unique websites that she tailors to each client. Um, Lori serves people from all walks of life, including LGBT individuals. But when it comes to determining whether she's going to take on a new project, she always looks at what is she being asked to communicate or speak she uses her talents to create these custom websites. But as you said, Colorado takes the position that it can force Lori to speak messages that she disagrees with, specifically when it comes to custom wedding websites that Colorado can force Lori to celebrate and speak in support of same-sex marriages in violation of Lori's belief that marriage is the union between one man and one woman. So Lori challenged Colorado's uh, law and how it was being applied to her. She saw what had happened to Colorado cake artist Jack Phillips, who was dragged before the same state civil rights commission, and it's now 10 years that he's been in court. And rather than waiting for that to happen to her, Lori had no choice but to challenge this law And that led her to a case at the Supreme Court on whether Colorado can censor her speech in violation of her constitutional rights.
0: Well, somebody might say, "Okay, I'm having deja vu here. Didn't the Supreme Court issue a ruling in Jack Phillips' favor in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case several years ago? Are we rehashing old material or are there some new components of this particular case that need to be addressed by the high court? Yeah, well,
4: there's a lot of similarities in the cases. In Jack's case, though, the court focused on the hostility that the Civil Rights Commission had shown to Jack when, during all of this process, it compared Jack's beliefs about marriage, beliefs that even the U.S. Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision that are honorable and decent beliefs held by people of good faith, but nonetheless said, Jack, your beliefs about marriage are no different than, than Nazi beliefs. And so the Supreme Court said, Colorado, you can't show hostility towards people's faith. You can't punish people because you don't like their beliefs. But the court didn't answer the bigger question about First Amendment, of whether Colorado can violate artists like Jack and like Lori's First Amendment rights. So Lori's case squarely answers that bigger question of whether Lori and Jack and all artists and really all Americans can be free from government censorship if the government disagrees with their their views.
0: How would you describe the nature of the, as we say, arguments that uh, that took place in the high court?
4: I think we were very encouraged to see all of the justices focusing in on those important questions of free speech. There was a lot of hypotheticals that they were asking about how far a ruling for Lori would apply. But I think we were encouraged to see them time and time again come back to recognizing that there are limits on what Colorado or any government can do when it comes to censoring or coercing people to speak messages that they disagree with. So I think there's there's obviously some questions about how far this goes. But time and time again, we saw the court coming back to this very clear recognition that there are limits on the government's authority
0: when it comes to matters of free speech. And as you've said, this is a matter of whether or not the government can compel somebody to engage in speech that violates their deeply held beliefs, their conscience rights, as you might say. So you mentioned hypotheticals. I wanted to concentrate just a bit because some of the coverage that I've seen has focused in on some of the justices actually engaging in some hypotheticals, which would almost indicate that they were taking positions with respect to the case and and almost really kind of getting things off track by presenting these hypotheticals and presenting information that really is not what the case is about. What do you think?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we saw some some hypotheticals uh, dealing with um, race or other issues and really questions and hypotheticals where someone was turning away someone, denying them something because of who they are. And Kristen Wagner, our, our president and CEO arguing the case, repeatedly brought the court back to, Lori serves everyone. Both the state of Colorado and the lower courts all acknowledge this, that Lori serves people from all walks of life, has LGBT clients. It's always with her about the message, not the person, but the message. Mm. And I thought Justice Gorsuch hit this point very well. He said, for artists like Lori, it's not the who, it's the what. And so I think a lot of the hypotheticals we were seeing were conflating those two. And we kept coming back to the point that with Lori, it's never about any characteristic of the person asking, but rather, what's the specific message you're asking me to create, and is it something that violates my
0: beliefs that I don't feel comfortable as an artist saying? Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom here on The Intersection. You can find out more about this case as well as others at adflegal.org. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House You can go online to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. Plus there are links to video content and you can find links to two blogs, One is the three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.